This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each episode, we ask a single question. To find the answers, we speak with experts and listeners like you. This podcast contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, well, actually, we've got a bunch of questions. If you've listened to our podcast, you know that our email address is loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. And we love to receive your feedback, your stories, and most importantly, your questions. Since Valentine's Day is right around the corner, we wanted to devote an entire episode to the questions that you've sent us. We have questions that range from, after trying unsuccessfully to have a baby, how do my husband and I make our sex lives exciting again, to, is it safe to let someone pee on me? And now we're joined by our favorite sex expert, sex researcher, and professor, Dr. Jana Vrangalova. Hi, Jana. Welcome back to the show. Hi. It's good to be back. All right. Let's get into the questions. I met my boyfriend three weeks ago, and he already wants to get married. (laughs) I truly believe he's the one, but getting engaged after less than a month seems kind of crazy to me. Should I do it? Uh, no. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> don't do it. No. Um, okay, you want some science behind this? Yeah. I mean, um, what is happening right now to both of them is infatuation, is your brain, both of your brains are, are on drugs. Um, they are on sort of this in, endogenous versions of cocaine and ecstasy that your brain produces when you fall in love with someone. And it's the first initial stage of love that is not going to last. I'm sorry to disappoint, but depending on how much time you spend together, it's going to sort of start decreasing anywhere between six months and a year and a half. And that's when you should make the decision whether you want to get married or not. So because at that point, you kind of get to know each other a little bit better. You have, um, you know, part of the what the drugs do of infatuation is they put these rose-colored glasses over your eyes. So you idealize your partner. You fail to see any of their negatives and you only see positives. Uh, and has a lot of other symptoms um, that make you make irrational decisions during that time. So you kind of you should wait till that subsides and your rational brain kicks in and see whether there is actual compatibility in terms of long term. And then you make a decision. Just because you don't get married after three weeks doesn't mean that those feelings aren't authentic, totally. possibly. You hear oh, about yeah. people all the time who they met and they knew they wanted to be mm-hmm. together for the rest of their lives. They're married for 40 years. Like, of course. but Sure, it's possible. It's, Absolutely. But most relationships fail. Yeah. Um, about 85% of all romantic relationships end in a breakup of some sort. Oh. I'm, yeah, I know. Right before <laughs> I'm Valentine's Day. I'm Debbie Downer here. Really yeah. feeling it. <laughs> Sorry. But... That's the reality. And so you want to be a little realistic about things. Um, I also feel like so many people, especially in the age of social media, are obsessed with sort of stories around their relationships. So the Mm. idea of like, oh, yeah, like we he proposed three weeks after and you're imagining, you know, telling your great grandchildren this or like there's some sort of like magic or authenticity. But I would say like don't potentially really do damage to your life. Mm -hmm. For having a great story. Like, that's not a 
good not worth it. reason. No. I mean, your husband can still say, or your to-be husband can still say, like, I knew I wanted to marry her three weeks in. That's just as romantic and adorable. Totally. Right. Um, I mean, don't make any life-changing decisions so so soon. Just enjoy. Infatuation is a beautiful, wonderful drug. So just enjoy it. And if it lasts, great. And if it doesn't, you move on. Perfect. Our next listener asks, can you jerk off too much? Lately, I've been getting off four or five times a day, and I'm starting to worry that I might have a problem. Seems like there's a difference between physically jerking off too much, if that's an issue, and maybe having some kind of compulsion or addiction to it, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. That's totally true. Uh, I mean, physically, not much will happen. You're not going to go blind. You're not going to have hair grow on the palms of your hands or something. You know, the the old, you're not going to go insane or whatever. But um, it, you know, the the physical issues maybe you get a little chafing or something like that, right? Or uh, what some people are more worried about, uh, it might make uh, sex with an actual person with another partner uh, challenging because you're. Uh, you're prolonging the state of refractory period, right, by by um, having all these orgasms. So the chances of actually getting aroused and staying aroused when you're trying to have sex with a partner um, might be challenging because you've, you know, you've exhausted, you know, your your um, uh, sort of sexual energy and uh, for the day. But what this seems to be indicating is more of a, as, as you said, a compulsion or some sort of a behavioral issue where, I mean, don't you have other things you want to do in life? Like, why are you spending this much time masturbating? Is something going on, right? Is um, Are you unhappy about something? Are you being anxious about something? Are you trying to avoid some parts of your life by spending all this time doing this, right? Are you not being sexually satisfied? So you can do anything too much. You can eat too much. You can shop too much. You can watch TV too much. You can, you know, any activity that is good and fun and um, evolutionarily adaptive, if you will, you can overdo. So, yeah, you can certainly overdo masturbation same way. How would I schedule in four or five masturbation sessions into a day? A day. Right. I don't know. That day after like day after day. Yeah. yeah. Are you working from home? Mm-hmm. Are you unemployed? I don't know. But— he might just have the, like a really great career setup, in which case, please write us back and tell us more about that because <laughs> that kind of flexible time sounds amazing. Sign me up. <laughs> the next question we have is, we are a straight married couple and we have pretty vanilla sex typically, but we do enjoy ourselves. The problem is that after trying to have a baby for over two years, sex has lost a lot of the fun. And now that we've decided to stop trying so hard for a baby and just continue our lives, we are having trouble getting back to where we were. We don't have sex often, and it seems like neither of us know how to initiate it anymore. Planning sex will not work for us because that's part of what we hated about trying to get pregnant sex. We both hate being turned down if the other isn't in the mood, which probably doesn't help. Even with this, we have a happy marriage, but we are young, and I don't want this to become our norm. Any advice would be appreciated. Hmm. That seems tough because they don't want to schedule sex. But they're also afraid of approaching each other for sex because they don't want to get turned down. Kind of seems like you have to do one or the other. (laughs) You know, what's the other option, really? Yeah, I mean, you have to do something. You have to start engaging in some sort of sexual activity for things to happen. Or you have to decide that you're going to schedule it. So, um, I mean, this is not uncommon. A lot of the time when couples try to have 
a baby and they, you know, schedule sex or whatever because of a baby that really takes the fun out of it. Um, so this is a pretty common issue. Um, and then coming back to that can be challenging. But I think, you know, just like with any other couple who may have kind of lost a little bit of that um, uh, you know, sense of excitement or passion, uh, you just have to start doing something sexual, whether it's even when you don't feel in the mood. And I think that's probably important for people to realize and remember that oftentimes in these long-term relationships, we don't just feel desire out of nowhere like we do in the beginning of the relationship, that um, oftentimes it's more of a reactive desire where you start doing something sexual and then your body starts feeling like, oh, this is what arousal feels like. This feels good. I want more of this. And then your desire kind of catches on to that. So when one person, you know, initiates, then the other person, even if you're not in the mood, kind of go along with it unless you're absolutely really, really anti-sex in that moment. But if you're sort of neutral, kind of push yourself to do it. And then as, you, as you're as you doing it, you're going to start enjoying it and you're going to start wanting it. So I don't know, watch porn together or, you know, go to a sex store, um, buy some sexy lingerie, buy a new sex toy and try it out. That, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I hate this phrase, but I was going to say like spice up. Spice it up. Spice mm-hmm. up your sex life because I think that that's a great way to, to make things new again. Yeah. So you were talking about, you know, the original desire that we have, that sort of like very hot, hot heat that you feel for someone. You've talked about this before when mm-hmm. we've been here about the novelty of new relationships or new sexual partners that wears off, obviously. So mm-hmm. if you're married, you're in a monogamous relationship with the same person, that's not going to be there. You have to find other ways to make that novelty happen. Yeah. Again. yeah. yeah. Go have sex somewhere else. Um on the subway. Role play, yeah. On the subway. Ooh. <laughs> also, I think being in the mood is relative. Like, there are obviously times when people are like, I am not in the mood to have sex. But then there's also, like, if you're sitting on your computer, or, you know, on the couch at home working and someone sort of pokes you and is like, hey, hey, like, <laughs> you want to do it? You want to mm. do it? Like, like turn, give your partner time and turn them on. Like, do, if you are in the mood, get your partner to the point where they're in the mood as well. It's not always going to work because sometimes those things are just going to be bad timing. But mm-hmm. you can turn your partner on. Yeah, give them a massage or something. Mm. I love a massage. Oh, yeah. You guys, I've gotten to the point now where I would rather just get a back rub than have sex sometimes. <laughs> I know that sounds awful, but I'm like, I just want someone to come over and rub my back and then, like, bring cookies with them. And Why like, not both? Why not have yeah. a get a back rub and then sex? It's true. It's a great intro. Yeah. I agree. Um, you can here, have that on your grinder. I should. Yeah. Massage. How do you know I have a grinder, Shana? <clears throat> I just assume all gay men have a grinder. <laughs> I think you have you also speak about your grinder account, like, on a very frequent basis. It's true. Um, so this listener asks... I've never tried getting peed on before, but I've met a guy on Grinder. <laughs> there we go, who really wants to do it. I don't really get the turn on, but he's hot, and I'm kind of intrigued. Why do people like it, and is it safe? So, water sports or you're in play or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's one of the most common, uncommon um, sexual interests, and um, so about. What is it about like 9% of men fantasize about that, whether they've done it or not, but they have some interest in that. So that's not that uncommon. Um, why do people like it? Who knows? Why do people like any sort of fetishes? Mm-hmm. It's it's a little dirty. It's a little forbidden. Um, 
there may be some humiliation aspect to it um, that, you know, whoever is peeing on the other person um, is, is, you know, humiliating them is is putting them in a in a some sort of a lower position um, though it doesn't have to be that way some people just like the you know playing with the with the liquid without the ds component of that so it really depends um uh is it safe uh it's pretty safe uh, unless the person um has some um health issues like some some um uh some infection, or maybe if they're on certain medications that are being excreted through the urine that are not good for the other person to drink, but, um, and you don't have to drink it necessarily, right? Certainly just, you know, being peed on without drinking it is safe. I mean, uh, babies, I was just teaching about this, babies in utero actually um, drink some of their own urine, uh, a little bit in the amniotic fluid. <laughs> Kinky from day one. I know. <laughs> uh, you know, when people get stranded in the wilderness, drinking their own urine is one way to get um, hydrated if they don't have access to water. So it's, it's it's not that big of a deal. My theory, partly, aside from those things, is that I think there's something very vulnerable about seeing someone pee. Mm. Like, it's something we're not supposed to see someone else do. It's a very private act. And so it's so intimate mm. that there's some kind of turn on there. I once had a man ask me to pee on him, and it was like a setup thing where I was going to go to his apartment, and I was going to pee on him. He'd already be sitting in the bathtub. So I drank like two or three liters of water, (laughs) and I went over, and I tried to pee on him for like half an hour. (laughs) And he couldn't do it. I'm so pee shy. I couldn't do it. So I left. And oh. I went literally across the street to the McDonald's and I peed for like 12 minutes. This is like the water sports equivalent of a like, woman on a pregnancy test. Like, so I drank like three things of yes. Gatorade <laughs> and then I... So. It's, it's hard. Well, we're so conditioned not to pee in front of other people. Right. We're so taught that that's a private act that when you try to do it in front of people or on a person, uh, most people have experienced that the first time they try to, uh, to urinate on someone. So you're saying I just have to like pee through it and I'll finally get well, there. Well, you could keep trying and you probably get there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You get you know used to that. It gets easier. Coming up on the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast, we'll answer questions about what to do when you're in a relationship with someone who's less than excited about sex, and if it's a good idea to discuss your sexual history with someone you're dating, and so much more. But first, a friendly reminder to find Love and Sex on iTunes. Every time you subscribe and rate our show on iTunes, it helps it to climb the charts, which in turn spreads sex positivity. You can also send us an email to let us know what you think of the show or send us your own sex and love questions. Our email address is loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. All right, so here's the next question. I am super paranoid about contracting an STD, so much so that I feel like it prevents me from enjoying sex in the moment, and I also don't seek it out as much as I can. I think a good chunk of my recent fear comes from a situation regarding someone I went out on a few dates with who eventually revealed to me that he has genital herpes. Even though I didn't perform oral sex on him or he on me, I became super paranoid that I had herpes for weeks after that. My paranoia was so strong that it caused things to fizzle out between us. 
Because of this one experience, my fear of STDs has become super heightened, even though my sexual encounters don't really go far enough for STDs to be contractible, and I always use protection. One time, I convinced myself that I had HIV after giving a guy a blowjob. I got tested eight times for HIV. Do you have any advice on how to overcome my fear of STDs? Okay, so there are a couple of issues here at play. First, what is the risk of actually contracting an SDI? Then what is the actual discomfort with contracting a certain SDI like herpes or HIV? And what are the actual consequences of that? Um, And then what are people's level of, of fear and concern? So this person seems to be, regardless of the actual risk, like their risk seems to be fairly low, right? They say that they don't even go far enough for STDs to be contractible. Like giving a blowjob to someone is almost certainly not going to transmit HIV, yet they're super paranoid. So that level of fear and anxiety regarding STIs, I think probably needs some clinical sort of help or intervention of some sort. It's um, it's just like any phobia. It, it feels like it has reached the level of what a phobia may be because there's really no actual reason to fear things as much as they fear. Um, That said, people often fear STDs, STIs, um, much more than their actual physical discomfort warrants. So there was a study that just got published uh, about a month ago that um, (laughs) found that people thought that someone who transmitted chlamydia to a partner by having unprotected sex with them but not knowing that they had chlamydia, you know, they thought, you know, they didn't realize they had anything. They went to a party, had unprotected sex, gave chlamydia to someone, and that someone had to take one week of antibiotics to cure the chlamydia. In another scenario, the person did the same thing. They went to a party, didn't realize they were sick, and they had unprotected sex with someone, and they gave them swine flu. And that person died of the swine flu. The people in the study thought that the person who gave chlamydia was riskier, stupider, and more selfish than the person who gave, you know, someone swine flu that they died of. So we tend to have this very rational fear of STDs as if they're the worst thing that can happen to them, right? I once had a partner say, uh, I would rather get hit by a car than get oral herpes. I'm like, really? Like 60% of the people, of the population has oral herpes, and it's really not that big of a deal. Getting hit by a car might mean dying, right? But um, so there is that as well. It also seems like a lot of it has to do with the stigma just of having it as well. And how would you tell a partner? And what would that mean about you? Mm -hmm. And there's so much just wrapped up in our culture about how sex is dirty and sex is shameful. And this is sort of like the badge of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think you're not just combating, like you said, like sort of thinking about the consequences, but also what does it mean about you as a person if you get one of those STIs? You know, I think that also comes from like abstinence-only sex education mm-hmm. where, or, or sex education where they show you, they're like, this is what genital herpes looks like. And it's like the worst case, case. in the right. world. <laughs> like I have a friend who works and is a sex health educator at a school and she's like, I don't want to show these kids these because if they get these if they get these STIs, this doesn't look like what I'm showing to them. Mm-hmm. Like, they're going to be like, oh, no, this can't be an STI. This must be an ingrown hair. This <laughs> might be something else because it's not this, like, huge, scary, pus-filled, you know, <laughs> volcano on their <laughs> genitals. And I feel like – so I feel like 
it is our fault because we, we've tried to educate people about STIs and bring down the numbers and make people aware so that they, they, they protect themselves. We've also, in a lot of cases, blown it way out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the vast majority of cases, STIs are asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. So people do not have any symptoms even if they have an STI. So, yeah, it, it doesn't look like what you see in sex ed health. Uh, sex health class. Uh, It looks just like what a (laughs) non-STI carrying uh, vagina or penis would look like. But, you know, that's not what we think about. Um, And um, uh, also some of the STIs, too, that people are really afraid of, like like herpes, like um, HPV or, or genital or anal warts, they don't test for those even. The only time they test for them is if you walk in with something that might be it mm-hmm. because so many people do have it and so many people are asymptomatic. Yeah. Like you said, I read somewhere that like one in five people now has genital herpes. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them will have it once in their life or they'll never have any symptoms. You yeah, know? So, so about 80% of people who um, have antibodies for, for genital herpes have never had an outbreak. Right. Ever. Right. So they don't know they have it. And they don't know if they're passing it on. Yeah. And there is such a thing as viral shedding. So some people can transmit the virus when they don't have an active outbreak. But the vast majority of transmissions happen during an active or around an active outbreak. So and a person who knows that they have herpes, they might be on antiretroviral medication, which further lowers their chances of transmitting the virus to anyone else. Um, so in some ways, someone who knows that they have it and are taking Valtrex, for example, might be a lower risk than someone who says, I don't know, I've, I've never had an outbreak, um, right? So they don't tell you anything. So, yeah, I think the fear that we have is much is, is, is t- totally out of proportion to what the actual physical discomfort of these things may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm 19 and gay, and the only guys I'm interested in are over 40. I guess you could call me a daddy chaser. I have no problem getting older guys to fuck me, but none of them want to date me because they think that I'm not serious or mature enough. But I am. How do I find a daddy I can call my own? <laughs> no, I think this is a question for you, yeah, really. I was about to say, default to Noah. <laughs> I don't think there's, a, you know, science here that I can <laughs> speak There's to. not. You know, I will admit, and now that I am 37 years old, I actually have a lot of younger guys who do hit me up on Grindr, are interested in me. And I do think there is some kind of... In the back of my head thought like, oh, I'll definitely have sex with you, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine dating you. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think it's because of the stigma that comes with the idea of someone older being with someone younger. Mm. But I think there is this, all this idea that they're going to leave me at some point because right. they're, they're not really they're interested in it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if you're 19, I'm 37, that's 18 years difference. If I think about who I was when I was 19, I'm not sure I would want to date that person. <laughs> But that's not to be said that it can't. It can't be great. Those kind of relationships happen, and and for some people, they're really successful. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with the you know in in the heterosexual world, right? Yep. There are a lot of older men who would happily have sex with you know a twenty year old uh, woman. Most of them will not actually date a twenty year old woman, but some will. Yeah. I think a lot of a lot of heterosexual forty year old men want to date a twenty year old woman. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> they 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 definitely want to have sex with them. Right. 
not necessarily date them because again, I mean, if you're thinking about a long term, maybe date them for a couple of months right, right, or something right. like like a short term dating because they can get laid, you know, during those three, four, six months right. a lot. But if you're thinking about a long term relationship, about building a life together, then the majority of forty year old men will probably not go for a twenty year old girlfriend. Yeah, but I think for for this guy who is 19 and does want that kind of relationship, you just have to keep trying, yeah. I think. And I think it doesn't hurt to say, too, you know, I am looking for a relationship here. Mm-hmm. For me, this is not just about sex. Um, and who knows who you might find. I mean, there will be some people who will be interested in that, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. So keep just trying. Keep trying. <laughs> Next question. What exactly happens when someone gets fisted? It seems really dangerous, and I have a hard time believing that it's even pleasurable, but I know people who do it. This is interesting, too, because there's anal fisting and there's vaginal fisting. So I'm not sure what the what the listener is asking about, but I guess we can talk about we can both talk of them. about both, yeah. yeah. Um, what exactly happens? Uh, an entire hand goes inside the orifice, whether vaginal or anal. So, yeah, that's that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty simple. Quick, yeah. Quick. <laughs> yeah. Um, it seems really dangerous. Well, it, it it could be dangerous if you're not doing it right. So, um, if you're going too fast, if you're not using lube, if um, you haven't kind of opened and prepped the orifice um, enough, but. With vaginal uh, fisting, I mean, think about it. Babies come out of right. there. It's so elastic. Entire babies come out of <laughs> there. <laughs> so there, there's definitely room to stretch that out, uh, that that opening out to uh, to fit a hand. And hands come in different sizes, right? There's really small hands mm-hmm. um, and much bigger hands. So, You know what? I've actually never fisted anyone, but I did have a boyfriend one time who really wanted me to. You have all these, like, close calls. You know, you almost peed on someone. Yes, you almost, almost fisted, fisted someone. someone. <laughs> My fear about fisting someone was that, like, I would get in there and then I would sort of freak out maybe and, like, open my hand and then they would they would just be dead. Wow. You know what I mean? Which seems so unreasonable, but it was something that I was scared of at the time that I, like, it would just be like, I just killed someone. No, that's not how it happens. Like we're, they were just going to burst than that. or something? <laughs> yeah, or it's just so stupid. Like like my hand would be up by like their lungs. Or, like I know that's not the way the human body works. <laughs> but again, this is probably because I didn't have the, the proper – they don't teach you about fisting in school. I mean people wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't, if it wasn't pleasurable. So um, yeah, so uh, – and. Uh, also with the with the anus, it stretches. It really does stretch. Right. So you have to start slow. You have to start, you know, with one or two fingers, and then kind of slowly build up to um, a hand. And then you know you you don't have to have your hand in a fist. You know, people right. immediately think of fisting as actually making a fist and then punching right, right. Uh, inside the hole. Oftentimes, I mean, sometimes that happens, but most of the time, fisting actually involves having your hand kind of. I don't know how to describe this without showing it but um yeah Noah it's like held. it's like turning it into almost like an ice cream cone or like yeah where the, all the fingers kind of come together come together right and you sort of ease tapers into it that's a good way also to we should it. talk about how how many nerve endings are in the anus i just read mm-hmm. that half of all the nerve endings in the pelvis are in the anus really i just read it the other day because oh. i was yeah. reading about kanye west and anal play oh, right so so there's so many nerve endings there mm-hmm. so of course it's going to feel really good or mm-hmm. I mean it could feel bad but if you're doing it the right way 
And in the right setting. It's a pleasure center. Oh, absolutely. And if you're doing that to someone with a prostate, then you have added, you know, incentive to do it because the prostate, um, you know, stimulating the prostate itself is highly pleasurable for for men, for people with prostates. But, um, yeah, so it can absolutely be pleasurable. Yeah. Um, People, some people love it. Um, I feel like everyone listening, you you all have a lot of things to try after listening (laughs) to this podcast. (laughs) question i also think it depends whether they're coming from a place of like judgment or from curiosity because if you're coming from a place of curiosity where they're like this kind of sounds fun but i don't understand how it could be fun like it's totally fine whereas if it's coming from a place of like uh how could anyone enjoy that it goes back to what we always say which is like you don't have to understand why somebody would enjoy something to like respect them as long as something is consensual and people are doing it like that's fine like whatever you want yeah I agree, 100%. All right, here's a very short and sweet one. How do I lose my gag reflex? <laughs> and I'm assuming they mean when they're having giving oral sex. Practice makes perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, to some extent. Would you suggest practicing with, like, an inanimate object? Yeah, you can definitely practice in a dildo. Uh-huh. Um, or if you have a very patient uh, life penis, you know, uh-huh. you can practice in the patient's life penis too. Right. Um, but there, there's definitely a way to kind of, you know, um, try to open your throat and then um, kind of keep it open for a little bit um, and then your your muscles will tire and then you have the gag reflex, then you kind of try again. So it's, yeah. Is it true that some people are born without a mm-hmm. gag reflex? That's a yeah. real thing. Yeah, some people don't have it. Or, you know, yeah. Don't, or it's don't have very mild. Yeah. Or, yeah. It takes a lot longer before it kicks in kind right. of thing. So for some people, it's going to be easier than for others. But, you know, I think probably most people can, can be trained to um, kind of d- delay that reaction for a little bit of time. And so you, you would still have that. It's it's just having more control over it right. when you when you need to. So I think you're going to be fine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Next question coming at you. My girlfriend and I recently discussed how many partners we'd previously been with. I've been in long-term relationships for most of my life, so I've only been with five partners before her. She told me that she's been with 49 male partners, but that's only counting anal or vaginal penetration. She couldn't come up with an accurate number for just hookups. Her extensive history partly excites me, but I also have this awful feeling about it. I know it's her past and has nothing to do with me, but I'd really struggle with it. Am I being crazy? I seriously wish it didn't bother me, but it does. I don't think he's being crazy. I think he's been conditioned by the way that society tells us about, especially women, how many partners you're supposed to have or not supposed to have. And that's sort of bubbling up now. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard for him. I have a serious question for you, Jonathan. Do you think that anything good has ever come from a conversation about how how many people you've each respectively been with? Like, do you think anyone's ever walked away from that conversation and been like, I feel so empowered. That was so fruitful and wonderful. Actually, yes. Really? Um, but that depends on, you know, what are the attitudes and values of the people involved. Right. And what their reactions are going to be. So, you know, uh, actually, my, my, my husband has had that. Um, experience with a couple of of his friends and girlfriends where you know they would they would share the number and he would be so accepting of whatever that number was that they walked away from that being oh my god I'm not 
this dirty slut that everyone has been telling me I was. Um, so, yeah, if you have a positive reaction to that or your partner right. has a positive reaction to that, then it can be a really empowering and really, you know, kind of um, uh, anti-slut-shaming experience that I think a lot of women would benefit from. The sad thing is that, you know, a lot of the time the reaction is not is not positive, is not accepting, is one of, you know, in best case scenario, something like, you know, like this listener who's who's struggling, who's not outright like, oh, my God, you slut, but still kind of struggling with it. And and um, and that can be tough. But, I, yeah, I think it's it's purely, you know, it's, it's we're conditioned to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And you're not crazy, but I hope you manage to overcome that. Um and again, it also depends on what her position on being with you is. You know, sometimes people who have a lot of partners, uh, they might not want a monogamous relationship. That might not be something that works for them. So, um, you know, we talk about that. But if she's pretty certain that that's what she wants, then her her history doesn't have to matter at all. Um, so, yeah, just work with your kind of sit and then try to overcome your emotional reactions because they will come up, but you you can kind of overcome them. You can allow you, – you, you don't have to allow them to overpower and kind of, um, you know. I do want to say, though, that I think there are a lot of heterosexual men who – have this like biting curiosity where they want to know the number but Mm -hmm. I think you have to ask yourself what your motivation for wanting Mm -hmm. to know the number is because I think in a lot of cases there is not a good motivation it's just curiosity or it's just that it's sort of torturing you not knowing but like if it's torturing you not knowing then that leads to like you are going to think differently or like what the number is is so significant and I think that becomes incredibly problematic I agree yeah it makes me sad though it, it, is. it makes me sad that we can't just really celebrate and be excited about, oh, you slept with 500 people. Wow, you must that's be really awesome. you must be really good at sex and mm-hmm. you must have had a great time. You know, mm-hmm. instead it's like, oh, that's oh, that's terrifying and awful. And yeah, I mean, and also when there is a discrepancy, like in this case, you know, he's only had five. She's had 50. Um, and especially when it's, you know, the, the, the guy being less experienced than the woman, that brings up all sorts of insecurities mm-hmm. in the guy himself because guys are supposed to be, you know, in our typical traditional masculinity norms, they are supposed to be the more experienced one. They're supposed to be the initiator. They're supposed to be the more skilled one. Mm-hmm. And so he may have certain, you know, anxieties about Am I good enough? Am I skilled enough? Am I doing this right? Like all of these other people, you know. Uh, so it, it can be very intimidating. So there's there might be that in addition to any kind of jealousy or possessiveness stuff that he might be feeling. But I don't think that necessarily more partners means more experience. I think a lot of times people who have been in long-term relationships where they actually communicate out what feels good and what doesn't and they have to evolve their relationships once, you know, that sort of initial spark goes away – those people can bring a lot more to the table sometimes than someone who's had a lot of one-night stands or a lot of casual sex and maybe a way where they haven't communicated with their partner or mm-hmm. talked about it or done a debrief or any of those things. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, I've been with my husband for 10 years. When I met him, he loved sex, but then eventually he had no desire for it whatsoever. I stay because I love him, but I almost had an affair on a couple of occasions. I'm really unhappy but I don't want to hurt him if I leave. I need a way to deal with this. Mm. Oh. This is hard. So mm-hmm. sad. 
And again, not that uncommon. This happens, right, in long-term relationships that one partner eventually loses interest in insects or has much decreased interest compared to the other partner. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what the best course of action would be. One option is to leave, but um, there are other options. Like, have you actually talked about how important this is to you? Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, it is absolutely possible to stay with someone that you don't really have any sexual uh, you know, contact with anymore because the relationship is great. Everything else about the relationship is great if you can get your sexual needs met elsewhere. And the partner, if they're not interested in sex, they might understand that this is important to you and that you might want to go and get that you know, taken care of elsewhere. So at least it warrants a serious discussion or or a series of serious discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like we're just starting to get to the point in our culture where those kind of talks can happen, mm. where the idea that relationships can mean all kinds of different things and maybe your emotional needs are being met and that's great and your sexual needs can be met in a different way like sometimes i think my ultimate relationship would be with my best friend sarah who is a (laughs) straight cisgender woman and i love her and we get along so well and we go on vacation three times a year together and you know what i mean but i don't want to have sex with her so it's like she and i would live together and then i would just go hook up and then i'd come home and we would watch the food network together (laughs) you know so like that seems like ideal to me Mm -hmm. but up until even recently and even now i don't think we've been able to have those kind of conversations because our ideas of what the family is and what a relationship is has been so strict and so sort of Singular. Yeah, Um, and regulated. Um, But I think it's exciting because we're just now starting to talk about non-monogamy and we're just mm -hmm. now starting to talk about um, different kinds of family situations. And that's really exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we we have this um, fairy tale kind of notion that uh, our partner, our husband, wife, uh, is going to meet every single need that we have, that they're going to be everything to us. And if they're not everything to us, then that's it. It's the end of the relationship or the relationship is not good or not um, happy and satisfying. The reality is that's not how things work. Oftentimes, no, one person can't be everything and you don't necessarily want that one person to be everything. Um, we all have different needs and as long as a certain amount or, or you know, constellation of needs is being met in your primary relationship – you can go and have those other needs and desires, interests met elsewhere, um, whether that's sexual or not, right? Maybe it's the opera, right? You hate the opera and your <laughs> partner loves the opera. Well, you don't have to drag them to the opera or you don't have to suppress your need to go to the opera for the rest of your life. Go to the opera with someone else. Find your opera friend. Yeah. And, you know, we treat sexuality as so much different from the opera, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. For a lot of people, they're they're managing to somehow conceptualize it as similar to, oh, they just don't want to go to the opera. You're blowing my mind. A lot of people are killed (laughs) in the opera because of sex. That's true. (laughs) So they're they're already sort of There are some connections there. (laughs) Our producer is giving me a really bad look right now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and and if you need help with starting that conversation, um, go see a therapist, right? That's what relationship sex therapists are for kind of help guide the conversation but you should definitely talk about it before you make any decisions yeah
So, Karina, what are your plans for Valentine's Day? Are you going to the opera? Noah, you know that I like to say, you know, never say never, but I am never, ever going to the opera this Valentine's Day included. Um, You know what? Actually, my anniversary with my boyfriend is February 13th. That was my anniversary with my first boyfriend. Really? That's so funny. So, uh, I don't know. I think it'll probably just be a fun weekend, but it's not like, I don't know. I don't I don't have, like, expectations of, like, candles or flowers or all of that stuff. We're just going to have fun together like we always do. Every day should be Valentine's Day. Okay, I'm going to throw up. But, yeah, <laughs> no, it kind of is. I'm lucky. What yeah. about you, Noah? What are you going to do for Valentine's Day? I never go out, ever. I know this. This and, I know. And I'm going out. There's a really fun party, uh, a gay dance party that happens. And my favorite DJ in the world, DJ Louie, um, he just plays pop music. So I go out and I dance for like six hours. I don't really worry about meeting boys and I don't really worry about going home with anyone. I just want to go and dance. Like my Valentine is going to be Rihanna. <laughs> and does, she, it, does she know? Has she consented? It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just going to love her from afar. Take that, boys and girls. Your Valentine does not have to consent to being your Valentine, to, to other things, yes. but Consent is always important. But if but you want Matt Damon to be your Valentine, you know. Go for it. Go for it. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. We hope you guys have an awesome Valentine's Day. An extra special thanks to our guest, Dr. Jana Brangalova, our producer, Caitlin Bakuki, and our editor, Nick Offenberg. Want to be featured on an episode of Love and Sex? Send your love and sex questions and stories to loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. We will be back in just two weeks with an episode on sex somnia. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening. 